let's take a look at Luke chapter number 10, and I want to call out one of the verses that was read just a moment ago in this uh, very familiar passage from God's Word. But the verse I'm interested in focusing on this morning, although we will certainly look at the story, is number 29. So let me read that verse, and then we'll have a word of prayer. It says, But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Wow, that is quite a question. Who is my neighbor? And one that I think that the more I think about it is very serious and is really worthy of some of our time and contemplation. And so we're going to pray because I want to ask God especially to help me bring you this message this morning. Father, thank you for your kindness and love that you have been with us each step step of the way in this past week, and now you've given us a new day, and we do thank you for the nice sunshine that we see outside, and uh, we're just grateful for the way that lifts our spirits, and here the fog is gone, and the sunshine is out, and uh, you've given us a beautiful and wonderful Lord's Day. But Lord, we could have all of these things, including a comfortable, convenient building and, and nice amenities. We could have all of these things. Uh, and not have the people, and it wouldn't be worth anything because it's really all about the people. So thank you for each one who's gathered today. For every child of God who's in this place today, Lord, just give us a hungry heart now. Everybody comes here with needs. Everybody comes with burdens and problems and trials. Just give us peace from those things right now and victory over them so that we might be able to listen into your word and not miss the things that you brought us here to hear today. And then, Father, I pray that you will help me. I pray once again, Lord, that you will realize uh, how I feel the sense of my own inadequacy and insufficiency. And and yet, Lord, you promise to be with us. You say that in Christ we can do all things because he strengthens us. So help me to be up to this today. Help me to uh, triumph over any physical weaknesses, spiritual weaknesses, uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and be able to preach the word of the living God in such a way that it will be helpful and convicting and powerful and useful in our lives. And Lord, apply it to each of us, especially we pray, Lord, if we have anybody in the service today that doesn't know Christ as Savior, always, Lord, we're just eager that you may awaken that person to his lost estate, draw them to yourself, cause them to realize there's help here because there are people here who know the Lord and the word of God is present And the scriptures are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And so work to the end that people will be saved. Uh, Meet the needs of our hearts now. Thank you that you know us as individuals, so you can do that. You can take uh, the things that I have thought about and the things that you will guide me to say and go well above and beyond that to bless and reach each of us where we are. And that's what we're praying for today now in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, we took a Sunday off last week, and I think appropriately so, for our communion time. And uh, this week, I want to get back on track with our series, They Asked Him This. So we're looking at those questions that people asked Jesus rather than the other way around, the questions that Jesus asked people. You actually have both in this chapter here. And in in terms of questions that people asked Jesus, did you know that there are actually two So we're introduced to the man who asks these questions. We're told that he's a lawyer. It's a different term, really, and it has some significance beyond just the the, the normal term scribe because a lawyer, a little bit different idea than what we think of as a lawyer today, but some of the things are the same. Someone that you expect to be an expert in the law, but in this particular case, this would be a man whose expertise was in the law of Moses. 
So it's kind of interesting when he comes to Jesus with this first question that we read in verse 25, and it says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. So that would cause us to wonder. Tempted, test, same idea. Cause us to maybe just have some maybe doubts in the back of our mind about his total sincerity because we don't totally know what his motivation was in that we're told that he was attempting to test Jesus. Probably he was looking to ply off against Jesus, his own skill. Probably he already knew what the answer to this question was and wanted to see what Jesus would say. And it's interesting to see how Christ handles this. But anyway, he says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're not going to look at that one today because... You may recall that we had a sermon very similar to this back in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16. A different person comes to Jesus. He's the rich young ruler, and he comes to Jesus. That 1916 in Matthew, this is the question. Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Already treated that, so we're not going to treat it again this morning. But it proceeds because Jesus turns it back on him. So as I say, you have here examples of both. Jesus turns it back on him with a question. And he says to him, uh, what is written in the law? You're a a lawyer. You're an expert in the law. What do you read? What do you find as you study the scriptures? He answering said, verse number 27, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and so forth and so on. And he proceeds there to quote from Deuteronomy 6, 5. And then in the next verse, or at the end of the verse, in the next verse, he says, and he, and he said, uh, sorry, at the end of this verse, he says, and the second is like unto it, that thou shalt love or thy neighbor as thyself. And that he quoting from Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Well, do you notice the answer that Jesus gives to him? He said, thou hast answered right, this do and thou shalt live. Well, he did answer correctly. In fact, Jesus used the same formula on many occasions. We've talked about this. I want to be brief because I think you know this. But, you know, you can take the law, the Ten Commandments, that is. You can sort of divide it into what sometimes we call two tables. The first four talk about man and his relationship to God. So we call that the ver- man, the vertical. Then the, the last six talk about man and his relationship to his fellow man. We call that your horizontal relationship. Well, then we read what happens next. So he has this right. Jesus said, you've got it exactly right. Just go ahead and do that. And then the next verse, which sort of betrays, I think, a little bit of insecurity. Same thing I talked about when we talked about the rich young ruler. Uh, He said, all these things have I done since my youth up. What lack I yet? Because there's always insecurity with someone who's resting in his own works. Because you will never know if you have done enough. Only by resting in the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary can we have absolute assurance of salvation. And so when he comes to the next question now, here's where it gets interesting. It says in verse 29, But he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, Well, now the weaseling starts. And boy, how... How typical that is of human nature. Because that insecurity is there. But now, folks, I find it very interesting. Let me point this out. He doesn't seem to have any insecurity, although he certainly should have, with respect to the first table of the law. Those four commandments that are summarized with, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. He poses no question about that. Where he seems to be feeling the heat 
where he seems to be uncertain of himself is in his relationship to his fellow man. Now, we'd be guessing to know why that is, but, I mean, you've got six commandments there, so you can take your pick of what you think several, perhaps, were bothering him. Maybe he sensed that he was a coveter. Maybe he had stolen something from someone. It's really very difficult to know, and it's not worth our time, except to point out that that's where he seems to feel inadequate and seems to feel insecure. So that's where he wants to sort of weasel a little bit. And being a lawyer, he's going to split hairs and ask Jesus the question in return, and who is my neighbor? Well, it's a great question. His motivation in it is to sort of, you know, try to weasel around a little bit, so maybe that's not the greatest, but it's a wonderful question to ask. It's something that we really need to take seriously and contemplate in our own lives. Now, I would like to point out to you something else, and all this is the free introduction, (laughs) but What I'd like to say is, you know, it's kind of interesting the way the Lord sees fit to answer him. Do you notice that Jesus offers no definition? Because if you're a weaseler, if you're a hair splitter, if you're one to argue over words, then probably no definition will really be adequate. You'll just find some way to kind of try to dig around the hedges with that too. So Jesus doesn't offer a definition. We could work on maybe deriving one from what he says here, but instead he tells a story. And if it's true that one picture is worth a thousand words, then how about one story? And of course, Jesus was the master storyteller. And what we are treated to now is a question and a story that occur only in Luke's gospel because Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, I ask you, of all the stories that Jesus told, what's your favorite? Would it be this one? This is probably the most famous of them. I kind of find it interesting. It's a little bit of Bible Bible trivia. kind of find it interesting that the two most famous, I mean, even in terms of people who don't know a lot about the Bible, the two most well-known stories, parables, if you will, that Jesus ever told, they both come from Luke's gospel. They're only contained there. I think it's probably true that this is the most well-known. The second would be right behind it in Luke chapter 15, which is the parable of the prodigal son. So Jesus proceeds to tell this story, and he doesn't define what a neighbor is. Instead, he tells a story to help the man understand what a neighbor acts like. It's a picture to see what a neighbor does, not so much what a neighbor is. And by seeing what a neighbor does, you get, the, you get an understanding of, of what a neighbor is. But if you look down in verse 36, I think we can demonstrate this because after we get to the end of the introducing of these different people that are the characters in the story, do you notice now he doesn't ask, did you figure out who a neighbor, what, what the definition of a neighbor is? Notice what he says. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor? Who acted the neighbor? Who played the neighbor? Who was the real neighbor in this story? And that's that's kind of how this goes. And I think there's a certain genius in this, which you probably would expect anyway, since the Lord knows the heart, and the Lord certainly knows how to respond to this man's need and how to respond to this man's question. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to consider three different types of neighbors because I think you can find three here. You might be thinking to yourself, well, there's only two, but 
I have a third one for you at the end, and that one might surprise you, so don't go to sleep. Hang on for the end as well, or I'll have to wake you up when we get to the end if you've fallen asleep so that you get that answer too. But first of all, I want to talk about the person that I call the false neighbor, or we could say the failing neighbor. And of course, I'm referring to the two people at the first part of the story, the priest and the Levite. I could have said also this, if you were looking to tell a story that was as practical as you could get, Jesus just did it. Because this would be a story that everyone, particularly people living in Jerusalem, of which these people uh, are examples, particularly the priest and the Levite, but even the Samaritan is traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Anybody who lived in that area, anybody who knew anything about this, would know exactly what Jesus was talking about when he said a certain man, as he introduced his story, a certain man, verse 30, went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. All right, let me tell you something. You've got about a 17-mile road trip to do this. You're going to start at roughly 2,500 feet above sea level. Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. And you're going to drive down to Jericho, which is about roughly 850 feet below sea level. If you do the math, you have over 3,000 feet of drop in that 17 miles. It's at least 175 feet, maybe more per mile that you're dropping. Or if it was consistent in every place, you'd have a, a, a more than a 3% grade. And so this, this road is notorious. It's windy, it's steep, it has all kinds of places in it that people, it's, it's wild around it, not a whole lot of, of stuff there. It's out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. It's the perfect place. And it was not just the perfect place, it was notorious for it. It happened all the time. And so these guys would understand exactly what he was talking about right away. This was no theoretical story. This was no fictitious story. This was something that people were very familiar. If you were traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho, you needed to take care. And because the road had a reputation for having these robbers and thieves and brigands that took advantage of vulnerable people, robbed them, and that's exactly what happens to this man. Now, the man who fell prey to these thieves, he's undoubtedly a Jew. And you say to yourself, well, nowhere are we specifically told that he was a Jew. Yeah, and so I'm going to tell you undoubtedly, though, he was a Jew. This is less conclusive, but he's starting his journey in Jerusalem as well. It doesn't necessarily make you a Jew, but it's a good start. But I think what really sews this up is the fact that when you get to verse 33 and Jesus introduces the Good Samaritan, it's exactly what he says. He says, after the priest and the Levite, who are obviously Jews, right? After the priest and the Levite, who are obviously Jews, he says, but a certain Samaritan draws the contrast with only one man. So I take that, and I think we're absolutely on safe and solid ground to say that, that in the first part where we're talking about the failing the false neighbors, we're talking about people that failed in respect to their fellow man because isn't that what Luke 
19.18 said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So if you go back and you look at that context, we won't take the time to do this, but it's very clear that when Moses gave this commandment, he was talking from Jew to fellow Jew. And so these guys are absolute zeros. They are absolute failures, religious men no less. And I I think the fact that Jesus used his first two examples of religious men had to sort of strike home to that, that lawyer because although he wasn't a Levite, and although he wasn't a priest, being a lawyer, a man who was a, a, an expert in the law of Moses, he was obviously a, considered himself and was a religious man. So the first two examples kind of mirror where he is at in life. Well, the first guy comes along, he's the priest, and he's traveling, traveling along, and he sees this man who is fallen in the side of the road. And, you know, it's, it's sort of like if you were, instead of driving, if you were walking down the road and up ahead you kind of see, oh, man, roadkill. And you can see enough to think to yourself, this is messy too. Most people, I mean, at that point, you're going you're gonna to maybe do the same thing this man did. You're going to cross and pass on the other side because you're really not interested in getting that close to a, a bloated carcass and the bad odors that come and flies and all that kind of thing. And that's exactly what this guy does. He looks ahead, sees what it is, doesn't even care enough to go and see whether the man's still alive or not, see whether or not he needs any kind of help, just crosses by on the other side. How interesting. The second man comes along and if the first guy is a zero, I say on the, on the test, this guy is an absolute zero. In fact, I'd say he's a zero with the rim rubbed out. He's just about less than zero. The other guy, I don't know, maybe you give him 5%, but I mean, you know, I, I'm not sure that that's anything to brag about if you get a 5% on a test. Maybe you give him 5% because he looks up ahead, sees the roadkill, and says to himself, hmm, it's interesting, and he walks up. The Bible describes Jesus when he gives this. This Likewise, a Levite, verse number 32, when he was at the place, came and looked on him. So he, he at least got close enough. Do you think to yourself when he got close enough to look down at that man, he could see, see him breathing? Think about this. He was half dead, but half dead people breathe even if it's shallow. Do you think the guy was at himself, so to speak, enough that he sensed that someone had come up and was standing over him and looking down at him? And do you think he might have even from a parched throat croaked out something like water, water? Folks, the more I envision this, the more I think about this, the more I think to myself, this is incredibly horrible. What happens? in this particular case. In fact, to use the language of the parable, they showed no compassion. Verse number 33 says, but a certain Samaritan as he journeyed came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. They showed no compassion. Compassion is the emotion that's evoked when you see your fellow man in a situation of desperation or need. 
But at the end of the story, when Jesus asks the man, which one now, we read in verse number 36, do you think was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Another word is used, and it says in verse 37, and he, he that is the, 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 the lawyer, answered and said, he that showed mercy on him. Compassion and mercy. The very things that you would hope that you'd be desperate if you were in that type of circumstance for someone to be willing, if the tables were turned and you were in that circumstance, the very kind of thing you'd be desperate for someone to show you, these two guys, these two religious guys, don't do that at all. By every standard, even by the standards of Leviticus 19.18, a, a Jew to a fellow Jew, they were false. I mean, folks, I'll tell you, what I have just described, it takes a special kind of selfishness. It takes a special kind of hard-heartedness to do something like that. I, it just is almost unfathomable, except you realize that the heart is deceitful above all things, and whatever these guys are capable of, you and I are capable of under the right provocation and circumstances. Because people, and that's you, and that's me, we're inherently, that's, that's just Adamic. That's just fallen sinful nature is that if you wanted one word for it more than any other word, you would just say selfish because that's exactly what we are. We're not God-centric. We're not other-centric. We're self-centered. That's a part of what it is to be fallen. Tickled me, tickled me recently. I read a story about these two guys. Sort of brings the thought out, but I had to laugh. These two guys went to a restaurant. They decided they were going to go out to eat. And uh, so they got to the restaurant. The waitress came, gave them each a menu. They looked it over, and they both decided that they were going to order the filet of sole. So they gave the menus back to the waitress, and after a bit she came back, and she had a platter with, with the fish on it. And there were two pieces. One was obviously larger than the other. So the one guy put his hand out and took the platter from her, and then he got a plate, and he served his buddy, gave him the small piece. And his buddy looked at it when he gave him the plate. He says, uh, well, you certainly have nerve. And his friend looked at him. He said, well, what's, what's troubling what you? What are you also bothered about? He said, look what you've done. He said, you've, you've gone and given me the little piece and kept the big piece for yourself man looked back at him and said, well, how would you have done it? He said, well, I'd have given you the big piece and taken the little piece for myself. He said, well, then what are you so all concerned about? He said, I have the big piece, right? <laughs> at that point, they both laughed because the story sort of tells on us, doesn't it? And that's exactly what it is with these guys. These guys, folks, are the absolute, I mean, they are polar opposites of what we call the golden rule. Now, it might do us well to look back at this because this fits, actually. Look at Matthew chapter 7, and you can keep your fingers here, but I think it would be good to see this. I've never presented anything to you on the Sermon on the Mount, but I can tell you that you have a, a central, large central section in the Sermon on the Mount that contains the bulk of the teaching of it, and when Jesus gets to the end of it, that section ends at chapter 7, verse 12. 
And look what he says. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So what we know is the golden rule basically says the same thing. It, it, that summarizes the law in terms of especially the second table of the law. That's the law and the prophets, that you do to others what you would want them to do to you. And so here are these two people who are religious people. If the circumstances were reversed, do you think they would want someone to show compassion to them? Do you think that they would want someone to have mercy on them? Well, of course. But they're false, see? They're false in terms of their religion and they're false in terms of their acting as the neighbor. They're the false neighbor. They're the failing neighbor. And I'm sure at this point, this lawyer feels maybe just a little bit of heat because, as I say, he... He was, in essence, from that group of people. Well, then we have the true neighbor, or you could call him the good neighbor. You know, every time I think of the good neighbor, I think of State Farm. They claim to be the good neighbor. That, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there, right? You're always there for the premium. Not always there when you have the claim, but, well, I don't know. I just, <laughs> I'm being unkind to State Farm. It tickles me, though, every time I see that because it seems like that's the way the insurance companies are is they're all smiles until you have a claim. But at any rate, we have the true neighbor or the good neighbor. Now, I think that here's another twist that struck home because as Jesus tells the story, he now says, after he introduces the priest and the Levite with whom this lawyer would no doubt very much identify now he introduces the third player. Verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. A certain Samaritan. So Jesus illustrates the good neighbor or the true neighbor using a Samaritan. Well, what kind of relationship existed between the Jews and the Samaritans? This is what makes this all the sharper in terms of its conviction because, as you know, the Jews basically regarded the Samaritans as half-breeds and outcasts, and they wanted nothing to do with them. They considered them to be inferior. So you have a, a, an incredible contrast because here's a priest and a Levite, not only fellow Jews, but clergy, so to speak, as we would call them. They don't have the time of day for their fellow man. Here's a guy who comes along who has no reason... He has every earthly reason from the standpoint of how he's been treated by the Jews and the reputation that the Samaritans had with the Jews not to stop. If anybody had an excuse to go by on the other side of the street from a human perspective, it was he. But he sees this Jew not in terms of his attitude. He sees this Jew not in terms of his hostility. He sees him in terms of a fellow man and thinks about what he would want someone to do for him if he were in the same circumstances. At this point, beloved, it doesn't really matter whether he's a Jew or a Samaritan. What matters is he has desperate needs. You know, I always tickled about that. I think about the 
when Ronald Reagan was the attempted assassination of Ronald Reagan, and uh, a lot of people don't realize how close that came to taking his life, that 22 slug. But in any case, they got him over there to the hospital and got him in there where they were trying to figure out exactly what the extent of the injury was, what they were going to have to do. And Reagan was conscious enough that he said to the doctors, please tell me that you're all Republicans. <laughs> and the, the medic, the, the medicine, the, the, the doctor who was in charge said, Mr. President, today we're all Republicans. You know, it kind of needs to be that way, right? When you're in those circumstances, kind of take a few lessons from that today wouldn't hurt us any, would it? But when he looks at this man, it says, or the thing that we see is, is first of all, three things. So what does all this look like to have compassion, to show mercy? What, what does all that really look like? Well, he sees this man as someone, number one, who needed his time. Verse 33 tells us that he was in a journey. Now, I, I can't prove this. Um, I don't really know what exactly this man was doing, but when I look at the other details, I, I tend to think to myself that he was some type of a businessman. He definitely was on business, whether it was family business or whether it was commercial business. In other words, the business of his livelihood, we really don't know. But he seems to be a man who's very familiar with the innkeeper, the arrangements at the inn. He knows exactly where it is as if he travels this road on a somewhat consistent basis. Not only that, but the innkeeper seems to know him well enough to know he's good for it, when he leaves the man there and gives him the money and says, and whatsoever thou spendest more when I come again, I will repay thee. He doesn't seem to have any problem trusting the guy. So I think that probably he was involved with some type of business. Well, if he was involved with some type of business, whether it was personal or private or regardless of what it was, he had a place to go. He had something that he needed to do. Undoubtedly, the priest and the Levite thought that their time was too important to spend on someone like this, but not this guy. At this point, this man just says, you know what? I have to stop. Doesn't matter what I had planned for today. Doesn't matter that I told so-and-so down there in Jericho I'd be there by a certain time. This guy needs my time. He puts his business on hold. Verse 34 says he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to the inn, and took care of him. So I see, secondly, that he looked on this man as someone who not only needed his time, but someone who needed his help. Why did he need his help? Well, it says they stripped him of his raiment. Can you imagine anything being more humiliating than that? Most people today wouldn't give two hoots about your clothes. Because clothes to us don't matter. Clothes are everywhere. They're expensive clothes and less expensive clothes, but most of us can afford some kind of clothes. But that wasn't, it wasn't that way in Bible times. Clothes had worth, so we don't know. They, they, they took what they could get from this guy, everything they could get. Jesus says they stripped him of his clothes and left him half dead. So I don't know whether that means they just took his valuable outer garments and he, he was basically reduced to nothing but his, we would say, his underwear or, or whether they took everything. I don't know, but he was, he was in a, a bad state. But he was, you know what? When you're half dead, you don't much care. 
about your humiliation. You don't much care about modesty at that point. The poor guy has greater needs than that, but that's certainly one of them. But I have to think that this man reached into his satchels on that beast of burden that he had and took out some clothes that were undoubtedly his, unless he was selling clothes too. Either way, they were his. Gave the man a change of clothes, maybe his own change of clothes, the clothes that he was planning to use when the ones that he was in were soiled and couldn't be worn any longer. The man had wounds. The Bible says that they wounded him and left him for half dead. He took the, the wine that he had. Why in the world would you do that? Because it had a mild alcoholic content and therefore it could, it could double as a disinfectant. He poured in the wine to disinfect the wounds. And then, just like you would get out a, an ointment or a salve to put on something, they, olive oil was used that way in Bible times. It was an emollient. emollient. And so that's why it would be given to someone when they came in to, to put on their face. Because you'd be out there in the, in the hot, in the wind, and your face would be all beat up and chapped. And so they'd give you olive oil. And it, it acted as a healing agent. So he gives him of his wine. He, he gives of his, pours those things into the guy. And then the guy is so bad off, he can't walk. Most people half dead can't walk. So he puts him on his own beast of burden. And now he's the guy who's going to walk. All the way to the end. We're not told how far that was all the way to the end. So when we flesh this out, when we look at what it was that this good Samaritan did, when he looked on this man and said, what would I want if I were in the exact same circumstances? What would I want somebody to do for me? His business doesn't matter. He knows the guy needs his time. His, his oil and his wine don't really matter so much anymore. This guy needs his help, and that's the first priority. And thirdly, he sees that this man needs his care. He couldn't walk, so he gave him his own beast of burden and took him to the innkeeper and then realized that the guy was going to need multiple days' worth of attention, so he pulled out of his purse two pence. That's why you think to yourself, maybe he was a businessman of some kind, because, see, two pence, this is the denarius, which means that this is what you'd get if you were, in our society, we'd say minimum wage. So this, this would be what you'd get if you were working that kind of a job for all day. Two days worth. Two days worth of work. I don't know, maybe he earned more in the kind of work he was in. I really don't know. But this is not a small amount of money. He pulls it out, gives it to the innkeeper, and says, take care of him. Take care of him. And if you spend anything more, whatever you spend, when I come again, I will repay thee. These are all the things that if we were in the same circumstances, if the Samaritan had been in the same circumstances, we would want someone to do for us. This is showing mercy and compassion. Precisely what, if he were in that situation. You know, I've thought a lot about this because I personally, I find all of this quite convicting. I think that the church isn't so good at this. And I don't think we've really done a lot of preaching about this. And I think that one of the reasons that we haven't is because 
we think it's all the liberals do is do this kind of stuff. And so then we got to be careful that we don't get off into that and that, that we preach the gospel and stick to the word. Well, yeah, you got to do that. You got to do the other two. The Bible talks about doing good to uh, the household of faith, to all men, and especially those of the household of faith. And I, I personally think that the, the church is in arrears in this respect, especially our kinds of churches, because we tend to react against the entitlement of the day. We, we tend to react against all the abuses of the day, and we tend to react against people that we know game the system and could work and won't work. And, and all of those things are, are legitimate. But I think there's a whole lot of people on the outside of the church that are looking at us, and all they see is people that are too good. Too good to really mix and mingle with them. Too good to really care about them. Too good to really be friendly to them. And I, I find it very convicting. When I think about, well, who is my neighbor? Because there's a whole world of people out there, more than six billion people. And, and I think to myself, not to give myself an excuse, but I think about the practicality of Jesus' story because in the day in which Jesus lived and they lived, you know, you wouldn't necessarily have the accessibility that we do to all the needs of the world. These, this, this man would be just somebody that you, you crossed path, paths with in life. When that man started out that day on that journey, he didn't know he was going to encounter that Jew who'd been robbed along the road. But God, this is how you and I would say it, God brought those two together. At the very least, folks, I think that's where we need to be challenged. Who is my neighbor? Who, who is it that God brings into my life? Who is it that I'm around? Whose circumstances of all the many people in the town I live in or the state I live in or the country I live in or the world I live in do I have personal contact with that I know something about, that I could do something about if I were motivated to do that? That's where the challenge comes. And then I think beyond that, our responsibility has grown. Today, our responsibility has grown because we can know more. Just the other day, I, I felt bad about it, but I got a letter from uh, Samaritan's, Samaritan's Purse. Which, which is the, I guess it's Samaritan's Purse. And some of you are going to say right away, well, that's ah, Franklin Graham. Well, Franklin Graham, you know, he, there's some issues of separation there that I wish he were stronger on, but I tell you, Franklin Graham doesn't mince words. He's stronger than his dad was. And uh, his organization, I trust. So if, if I'm going to give money to something like that, I trust them that the money's going to get there and it's not going to be all siphoned off into 27 different directions. Well, the last time we had one of these hurricane disasters, I was really burdened about that. And I had some money I'd put aside of the Lord's money till I saw how the Lord was going to lead me to give that money. And I sent them a donation. Well, that... So now they've got this situation down there in the Bahamas. I didn't have any extra money that I could send this time. I felt really bad that I had to throw that letter in the trash can. But I can only do so much. But I think the responsibility has become broadened because I think that we know more about situations that are door-opening for the gospel that we could be involved with and that we could help with. So I want to talk to you now. Wake up. It's time to hear about the third one, the ultimate neighbor.
See, at the end of this story, Jesus asks the question, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? I think this guy's already feeling the heat. I think he's feeling the heat because the first two guys who were obviously failures were religious men just as he was a religious man. I think he's feeling the heat because the guy who really gets the job done is not what he would consider a religious man, but an outcast, a half-breed, a vagrant, whatever term you want to use. But I think he's really feeling the heat at the end when Jesus says to him, he answers in verse 37, he that showed mercy on him, then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. But who does? I mean, some of us are better than others, but who really does? Like I said, folks, you and I, I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. We're, we're inherently sinful by nature. It, it, it becomes a difficult thing for us. I think about things that people need from me. And, and if I'm going to be selfish about something, one of the first things I'll be selfish with is my time, won't you? I only have so much. And it's a temptation to be selfish with your time. It's a temptation to do exactly what this is and pass by on the other side because somewhere I have to get and it's important to me. And sometimes I think in the light of eternity, how really important will that have been as opposed to the opportunity that God brought across my path? There's a guy in the church in Huntington who used to say, you know, life is just a series of interruptions. There's a lot of truth to that, you know. It's, there's a lot of truth to not fighting against those and to recognize them when God sends them and responding to them. Help, would I help somebody? I, I'm inclined to help people if, if I can. Care, I hope so. I hope my heart is sensitive and tender to these things, but at the heart of it, I know that biblical love is what motivates us to love others as we do ourselves, but our human nature is not to put others first. In fact, our, our human tendency is to do exactly what James is talking about in chapter 2. You know, he's, in, in chapter 2 of James, I won't ask you to turn, but in, in verse 15 it says, If a brother or sister be naked, sound familiar? Stripped him of his raiment in our story. James says, If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. And ye say unto them, Depart, be ye warmed and filled. And I think to myself, that's about like us. Yep, Lord bless you, brother. God will take care of you. You just pray, God will take care of you. And James goes on to say, And give them not those things which are needful to the body. What doth it profit? What kind of faith is that? Living faith or dead faith? The person who's the ultimate neighbor, the person who's the perfect neighbor is Jesus Christ because he's the ultimate Samaritan. Did you ever think about that? Jesus is the ultimate outcast. Jesus came into this world. The world was hostile to him, just like those Jews were hostile to the Samaritans. He came unto his own and his own received him not. The world rejected him. His people rejected him. And yet, instead of responding the way fallen human nature would respond. Jesus responds not by putting 
our needs on an equal plane with his own, but by putting our needs before his own. G. Campbell Morgan told an interesting story about Catherine Booth. Everybody recognizes William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army, but you know, they used to call Catherine Booth the mother of the Salvation Army. And G. Campbell Morgan, who preached at Westminster Chapel, was remarking about her on one occasion, and he had uh, been invited to a meeting with her, and in his language, his eloquent language, he put it this way, he said, humanity went to hear her, Princes and peeresses merged with paupers and prostitutes. Well, one night Morgan was in a meeting with her and she had a message. There was a vast audience of the very kind of people that the booths ministered to, that they drew because they saw the need there and they had compassion on them. And many people heard that message. There was a, a room full of, you know, so, publicans and sinners, so to speak, that had gathered to hear. Well, after the message was over, there's a number of those people found Christ as Savior, but they had been invited. Morgan and Catherine Booth had been invited to the home of a kind of a wealthy, well-to-do woman. And when they got to her home, she looked at Catherine Booth and she said, my dear Mrs. Booth, she said, that meeting was dreadful. And Catherine Booth looked at her and she said, oh my, she said, well, what do you mean? And the woman said, she said, oh, she said, when you were speaking, she said, I looked out at that audience, that sea of faces. And she said, it was terrible. Many of them were just so terrible. She said, I don't think I shall sleep tonight. And Catherine Booth looked at her and he said, my dear, you don't recognize them. She said in kind of a huff, certainly not. Catherine Booth said, well, that's interesting because she said, I didn't bring them with me from London. These are your neighbors. But Jesus Christ is the ultimate good Samaritan. Jesus Christ is the ultimate outcast. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 4 what it ought to be, not like James described. Depart, be ye warmed and filled. But in Philippians 2, verse 4, look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And then he goes on to say, if you want to know what that looks like, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Jesus looked at a hostile world as the ultimate outcast. And didn't hold on to what was rightfully his. Didn't think it was something he had to hold on to. Was willing to lay aside his glory. Lay aside the comforts of heaven. And come into this world of hateful, hostile sinners. And grow to the, the old rugged cross because that's what we need. That's the ultimate help. It's sad, isn't it? It seems when the religious people 
are shown up by the world when the world, like the Samaritan, seems to have a better idea of what it is to be a neighbor than some Christians do. It's worth asking yourself this question here this morning, who is my neighbor? I'll tell you a little story. It's always sort of been a favorite of mine. A lot of people are familiar. You've heard about this with the bridge over the River Kwai. I think think they made a movie actually out of that. But the man who wrote the book, the, the book doesn't go by that title, but the man who wrote the book Through the Valley of the Kwai, his name was Ernest Gordon. And, of course, it tells the story of this, this Japanese prisoner of war camp where they had all of these American soldiers, British soldiers, Australian soldiers, and apparently at least one, maybe more, Scotsmen, that they treated brutally, forced them into slave labor to build this bridge and everything else. But that book contains the story of an amazing man and an amazing incident that, that truly actually, this is not made up, just transformed because the atmosphere that was in that camp was dog-eat-dog. It was basically every man for himself. Whatever you had to do to survive is what you did to survive. You didn't think about your fellow man. You figured how you were going to make it the next day. It wasn't uncommon for a man to go to sleep at night and put whatever little he had in his pack under his head and wake up in the morning and find that it had been stolen. Not by the Japanese, by his fellow man. Well, there was one Scotsman in there, and this is the story of Angus McGilvery. He was a Scottish prisoner there, and he was a part of um, the Argyles, the Spanish group, or Scottish group, sorry, of soldiers. And it's a little bit sort of like the SEALs, and sometimes the Marines talk about this. You know, they, they had the buddy system, and they believed in it very strongly, and your buddy was, no, was known as your mucker. M-U-C-K-E-R. He was known as your mucker. And you basically had the responsibility for your mucker to see that he, re- he, see that he survived. Well, the unfortunate thing was with McGilvery's mucker, his, he was in very poor condition. He was emaciated. His health was failing. But McGilvery took this duty very seriously. So he'd go to him and gave him his blanket one day because the man's blanket had been stolen and he just gave him some kind of excuse when the man asked him where he got the blanket from. He gave him some kind of excuse about, oh, I I, I came across an extra blanket and just sloughed it off, but it was his own. Gave the man his own blanket. He would take his rations, he would take his food, what little he got, give it to the man, force him to eat because he was slowly but surely just dying of starvation and He would just say, oh, I managed to come across some extra food, but it was his own. Well, you know, it worked. The man began to improve. He began to uh, uh, get stronger. But right about the time the man was at the turning point, what happened shocked everyone because Angus McGilvery keeled over and died. People were shocked because he was robust, he was big, they thought he'll last, he'll be the last of us to go. He'll, he'll last the distance, but he keeled over and died. And when they looked into it, they found out that he had died of exhaustion and he had died of starvation because of what he did for his mucker. Well, when word circulated through the camp what McGilvery had done, it was just like there was a definite 
changed that very day that took place in that camp. People started thinking not so much about themselves. They started thinking about their fellow man. They began to pool their talents. This is all a true story. You can look it up. They began to pool their talents. One man was a violin maker. Another man was an orchestra leader. Another man was a cabinet maker. And pretty soon they had an orchestra full of homemade instruments. Then they started a church inside the camp, and it was called the Church Without Walls. The church and the services were so powerful that even the Japanese guards attended them. They were amazed by what it was that these men seemed to have. They began a university such as it was, a hospital and a library system. The place was absolutely transformed because of one person who lived out what Jesus is talking about here. So I don't know where you are with this today. I I don't like bringing messages like this because they convict me. (laughs) So I don't know where this strikes you today, but think about it a little bit. What people is God bringing across your path? What people need your time? What people need your help? Because I understand the reaction to this that some people have when they hear about this. They say, well, you know, nobody else is preaching the gospel to them. We've got to be sure we preach the gospel to them. But it doesn't help to preach the gospel to them if they don't listen. If they have this concept of us as people that are just too busy, too good to really become involved with them and care. How will they know that we love them? We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. How will they know that? And Jesus said, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love one for another. And so if you want these people, and I think to myself, if you want these people to listen to you, which is our highest goal, if you want these people to listen to you, maybe we should all consider taking Spurgeon's advice when he said, if you're going to give a poor man a gospel tract, Wrap it first in a sandwich. I don't do much good with this, but I try to do a little. The more I've understood this, the more I've tried to develop little practices to try to find a way to make some inroads. And I'll just give you one example. I don't know if it does any good or not, but I know I'm going to try. The other week I... Several weeks ago, I told you I was over at uh, Hope in Hanover, preaching over there, and so I had to stay the night. And usually when I go into this situation, I try to think about it in advance, and I, I try to have some extra money with me. I got tickled this past week when somebody got a picture of President Trump with a $20 bill hanging out of his back pocket. Did you read about that? Yeah, he said when he goes on trips like this, he says he always likes to carry a, a wad. He doesn't carry a wallet, carries cash, likes to carry a wad because he says he likes to tip people. He says he knows he's not supposed to, but he likes to do it anyway. Likes to tip the wait staff, likes to tip the people at the hotel, likes to tip them. Well, I don't have his wad, but I think there's something to that, especially when you go into a room and you know these people probably work for minimum wage, they don't get much money. It's what job they can get cleaning those rooms. And sometimes they leave you a little note. You ever gone into a room and seen that? Leave you a little note. You, you know they're trying to be kind. They're trying to be polite. But 
there's something implicit with that. Well, you know what? I want them to leave the, read the tract I'm going to leave. But I think the best way to get them to read the tract I'm going to leave is to leave money with it, which is what I do. And I put a little note on there, and I'm sh be sure that the money is right there with it where they can see the money. And I'm not just talking about a dollar. I'll leave the money there and a little note. Thank you for your kind note. Please read this. I think I have a far better chance of being heard that way than if I just left the tract. What do you think? And I think there's lots of applications like this that God can give us, but we have to quit. Father, thank you for your loving kindness.